1: All right, Welcome back, John. Thanks so much for hanging on on this Sunday afternoon. I, I can't think of a better time to talk about baseball, talk about sports, than a Sunday afternoon.
0: Oh, There's no question. I love baseball season to this day. So when we, we were last together,
1: we talked about your time with the Dodgers, 1978. I mean, that's a, that may be the first season I have vivid memories. Of, you know, the Bucky Dent home run, uh, in the one-game playoff, and then R- Reggie's three home runs were the season right. before. Right. So you didn't cover that one. No. But you got to cover the Dodgers day in and day out. A lot of our listeners know the name Tommy Lasorda, uh, kind of a lovable, seemingly lovable uh, guy, recently passed away. Um, You had kind of some run-ins with him.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I did. And, you know, I take part of the blame for that. Well, you know, he liked to intimidate new writers anyway to kind of, you know, try to keep you in your place. But um, And it happened... uh, in uh, the 1979 season, Dodgers were going bad. And one of the players told me that, you know, Lasorda had lost control of the team. Told me that off the record. And Lasorda had lost control of the team. Players didn't respect him, I don't think. Um, it, so I write it. What do you think that means? I mean, how did you interpret it, losing control of the team? It, it, you know, they just, they didn't listen to him. You know, they're laughing at him behind his back. And I take, you know, I was a rookie. I should never have written it, you know, to one anonymous source. And the backstory is so now we're in Philadelphia just before the All-Star game. The Yankees are playing at Anaheim. Billy Martin's managing the Yankees. He reads a story in the Orange County Register that I wrote and calls Lasorda and reads it to him, and Lasorda's livid, and starts confronting me after the game in Philadelphia. Now, we're going on to the All-Star game. Lasorda's the manager. The All-Star game's in Seattle, so the team's flying home, but I'm flying with the Dodger contingent on a commercial flight, first class, because Dodgers were picking (laughs) everything. And And you're going home. I mean, this is your home state. Yeah, and I'm looking forward. My cousin's picking me up at the airport. So... You know, we when we get to the airport he starts in again on me. I wanna know who's you know, who said this and well I can't tell you, Tommy. And it keeps going, we get on the plane, he's well, now we gotta take off. But once we take off he comes back to my seat, starts in again and I finally was fed up. I said, Tommy, if you wanna I don't you're right now you're invading my privacy. If you wanna talk more about it, talk to me at the ballpark tomorrow and he stormed off and <laughs> went downhill from there. I think
1: a lot of people are. It's kind of fascinating to hear this behind the scenes because, you know, we hear about feuds between uh, r- r- writers and managers or players, you know. And I mean, Steve Carlton, you mentioned Philadelphia. I remember Steve Carlton stopped talking to the press yeah. altogether, didn't he? Yeah. And, and uh, I'm sure some of it may have be, uh, been worth it. I mean, Ted Williams famously didn't talk to reporters. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I guess there's always been this antagonist, not always, but there's been history of antagonism between writers. And I mean, how do you deal with that as a, I mean, you're a Christian man, you're, you're trying to write a fair account, but also, you know, do your job and, and you have to report what you hear. Right. How do you manage that?
0: Well, it was difficult, it was difficult, especially for me at that time, because I had no experience, you know, I was, thrown into the Major League Baseball beat at whatever I was, 25 years old and never covered a Major League game. And again, that's why I should not have written a story unless you get a whole bunch of guys saying the same thing. Yeah. So so you just, you learn and you're always going to have, if you're doing your job right, you're always going to have a few enemies anyway, because you have to report, you know, what's going on. Yeah. So,
1: I love I love all the name dropping you're doing though here with well, I know you're not I doing apologize. this deliberately. No, I love it because I mean Billy I mean the the idea that Billy Martin would call Tommy Lasorda about an art I mean I, I, who knew that kind of thing happened? But I mean it, this this is real life. Right. You know, did you cover I mean Billy, did you spend much time interviewing? I mean growing up in New York? I mean Billy was legendary. He got fired five times. yeah I mean, got into a fight with a marshmallow salesman. I mean, all these crazy stories about Billy Martin.
0: Yeah, I did not know him. Um uh, I knew Bob Lemon a little a little bit because you know I don't remember what years he managed the Yankees but had gotten fired but he was from Long Beach so he'd hang out at the Anaheim Stadium press box when Mm. I was covering the Angels I got to know him but I I had not Billy Martin I didn't really have any dealings with except that you know they had a bar in the press box at Anaheim Stadium and um You know, Don Drysdale was one of the broadcasters. He'd go in and have, you know, have a beer. And when the Yankees were in town, Billy Martin would come up and hang with Bob Lemon. And, I mean, it was fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, for those who who don't know, Billy Martin
1: met with an unfortunate demise. Died in a car wreck on Christmas Day, I think, 1989. Yeah. yeah. And had been coming from a bar, so... Um just, just a sad end to a, a certainly a colorful, uh, successful baseball life, if not
0: a great one. Yep. Yeah. And then but you mentioned Reggie Jackson. He played for the Angels when I was on the Angels beat and I had a great relationship with him. I'm the most interesting guy in baseball. I mean very intelligent, but you never knew from one day to the next what you were gonna get. One day he'd be humble Reggie and then the next day boastful Reggie, and then maybe the religious Reggie, um, next day after the profane Reggie, but it was just so much fun to cover.
1: Oh, uh, he was, uh, as a kid, he was my favorite. I, I had a Bob Shepard who was the yeah. Yankee public address announcer, lived in our town and would sometimes give us mementos from games and such. And he gave, I remember my, uh, little autographed photograph of Reggie Jackson, never met him, but I have a photograph of him. um, okay so let's we're gonna, there's so much more to talk about, yeah, this is your life and uh so you you you're deciding at this point like i 've got to move on here. this is not healthy for my marriage, but we haven 't even talked about how you met your wife. uh How did that happen?
0: Uh, we actually went to the same Lutheran grade school um, she's seven years younger than I, so you know when I was in eighth grade, she's in first, but she had a brother who was a year behind me um And a sister who went to that school too, but just sort of, I never, I never really knew her until probably the early eighties. And then we got set up, you know, uh, she was 24 at the time, I think 23, maybe. And somebody thought, you know, you guys make a good couple and set us up and, you know, having the, it helps having both having the faith, faith faith-based, you know, upbringing and, so there were no conflicts there, and sure. we've been married 38 years. And and getting back to Tommy Lasorda, you
1: had the opportunity for Tommy to meet uh, Marlene. Tell yeah. us about that.
0: So it was at a Baseball Writers Association of America. Our, our local chapter would have an annual oh. dinner in February uh, in advance of the season where the players were required to come and the managers, everybody was there. And then they'd sell tickets to... The public, but anyway. So I introduced Marlene to Lasorda at that, and Tommy says to her, "says You can do better than that." <laughs> and I've said since, you know, I'll concede him that point. <laughs> Wrong about many things. Yes, yeah, right, but maybe
1: yeah. That's that's great. Um, all right, so move you. You move from baseball to golf.
0: Yeah, um, I'd always followed golf, but when I got off baseball and I did one year of the Los Angeles Raiders, and then. Oh, man, we hate, I
1: mean, you know, Colorado hates the Raiders.
0: Everybody does. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a big fan myself dealing with Al Davis and some of those. Yeah. Um, Was this this
1: like the Lyle Alzado era when you were covering them?
0: Yeah. Jim Jim Plunkett, right? Jim Plunkett. Dave Dalby, I went to high school with, was the center on that team. So that that was kind of fun. But um, so I did it one year. And then I did the Super Bowl at the end of that season, which would have been the 84 season. So the Super Bowl's January 20th, 1985. I remember that because we got married a week later. You know, couldn't get married during the football season. So, but then I, um, because I was getting married, I, I wanted to. I love how off. you remember your anniversary by the sports <laughs> <Yes>. calendar here. <laughs> That's here. right. Uh, so. Then I got promoted to a job they call a general assignment, and it's you know uh, could be anything from covering the big college football game wherever it was, um, writing columns, things like that. And but they also wanted, can you do golf? And I said, yeah, I'd love to do golf. So that started in 1985, and much better sport than baseball. No night games. You know, you're not going to, you know, these run-down stadiums in, in downtowns. Now they're nice stadiums, but they're, you know, <clears throat> the Tiger Stadium and places like that, trying to hail a cab at midnight. Yeah. Now I'm covering—golf's all in the daytime, and you're going to Pebble Beach and Palm Springs and things like that, so well, I loved it. What do you think the allure of golf is? I mean, just—it
1: it's it, it is sort of this magical kind of sport.
0: It's— you know, it's hard to explain. I mean, if you play it, then you're totally into it. You know, you're watching it on TV. But but I can't explain it you know, I call it, it's a great nap sport, you know, because you're watching it on Sunday afternoon, you could fall asleep for 20 minutes and you miss nothing. You might miss one hole. So. A great nap sport. That's yes. good. I like that.
1: I uh, There's a pastor, a retired pastor friend in here, John Stevens in town here, Dr. John Stevens from First Press that such a great guy. He's in his late mid eighties now. And he, he, uh, he said to me, the reason I like playing golf is I, it it leaves me in beautiful places. I think. Yes. You know, just that, that aesthetic uh, is just, you can't beat it. I mean, there are ballparks are great too, but not, they're not, it's not Augusta national.
0: No, you know, and playing it, the camaraderie is so much fun. And, you know, having a little game with your friends and, you know, maybe a beer at the 19th hole and, you know, a lot of trash talk, but it's, It's just fantastic. Yeah. So you you start covering, this is um,
1: in the 90s. 85 was the first year on golf. Okay, 85. When did you get wind of a guy named Tiger Woods?
0: You know, started probably not writing about him, but following it uh, maybe 1988 or so, because he's dominating in Southern California Golf Association Junior Events. And how old is he Is he at this point? He'd have been about 12, 13. And then at 14, I started covering him in earnest because, you know, he looked like he was already the best junior in the country. Turns out he was. He won three straight U.S. Junior Amateur Championships. So, but when I started with him, you know, he, he's 13 or 14 years old. He had nothing to say, you know. So I worked the parents and got to know the parents real well. I mean, really well. We're, I played a lot of golf with Earl and and Coltita, his mom, had us over for dinner. Um, and then slowly Tiger came around where he trusted me and and had a really good relationship with him until I wrote a book about him, and that sort of ended that, but that's okay. Did he seem to love golf as a kid? or did he get pushed by the parents? No, in his case, he was he loved it, you know, in a lot of cases, because that's a question that everybody has, and, and I had. I'm going, you know, are they pushing him? But, you know, I'd go over to, you know, like to, to see him in advance of, you know, after he won the U.S. Amateur the first time in 2014, he qualifies for the Masters. So I'd go over to the house to interview him, before the next year's masters, just to get some one-on-one time with him. When I was done with him, I'd sit outside with Earl chatting, and you could hear Tiger. He always had a wedge in his hand. And he's chipping balls around the living room and he'd come out. He'd be always working on his swing. I mean, he loved it. Isn't there a clip of him out there, like on the Tonight Show, as a little kid? Yeah, I think I think he was like. Well, it was it was the Bob Hope? Okay. I don't think it was the Tonight Show's Bob Hope, and it could have been the Mike Douglas show. Okay, yeah, wow. So you, when you saw him a, a, as a f-
1: teenager, you thought there's something special here in this athlete. This this kid's going places. Or were you well,
0: surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. But, but in golf, you, there's so many stories of great, great junior players that just flamed out, you know, and never made it. So you you just cannot tell. But he sure looked like he had everything. I mean, he he won those three straight junior amateur championships, and that's hard. It's match play. Hmm. And a couple of them he had to come from behind, you know, late. And one of them, uh, he just did things that had never been done before. You mentioned that the relationship changed after the book. Yes. So what what happened? (laughs) That's kind of a weird story, but... So I uh, I had not intended to write a book on him. I'm glad I did. But uh, I got a call from the New York agent um, right after he won his third U.S. amateur, uh, you know. And he New York when he won his third U.S. amateur, you know, New York Times put it on A1, USA Today A1. I mean, he was a big thing. And she calls, can you do a book on Tiger? I said, Well, I think so. I just want to run it by the family first. Tiger was had turned pro. He was on the road, so I called Earl. Can you run this by? You know, I want to get your blessing. I, it's, it's not going to be his book. It's going to be my book. But um I wanted to let you know I've got this opportunity. Can you run it by Tiger and, and see didn't, if You didn't
1: have to ask this question. I did
0: not, yeah. and see if it's okay with it So I call Earl. Said call me back in two days. So I call him back. He says, Yeah. Uh, we think you're, you're okay to do it because we trust you and we know you'll be fair. Well, it turns out he never ran it by Tiger. Hmm. So, and then when Tiger found out, he he kind of flipped out and that was, that was sort of the end of it. But I was probably too close to it anyway, so. Were you, did he, he found out about it in the midst of you writing
1: it or were you trying to get interviews with him and he wouldn't cooperate?
0: No, he, uh, Somebody told him, and I forget who it was or where it was, at what tournament he was at. And he says, he's doing a book. And that was the end. He got mad, and that was the end of it. And your timing couldn't have been better. It was perfect, yeah. I'd completed the book in January of 1997. And three months later, or two 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 and a half months later, he wins a master's by 12 strokes. He's on the cover of every you know magazine, and i had the book was coming out two weeks after that so wow wow that's uh feels like that was blessed by the Lord I mean to do that project at that time
1: uh, it, you know, it, he honored you, you know? well
0: it, it in looking back on it from what and we're going to talk about this going forward, you know how we came to have our daughter Hannah, the stuff we had to go through was very expensive, and it was like you know we didn't have to worry about you know these expenses now because of the tiger book so
1: mm. yeah you and i share that in common i my first writing project i took we took the proceeds to adopt our son uh which we wouldn't have been able to do had it not been for right. that, that project so it's always great the way the lord provides yes let's let's turn to hannah but before we do let me just i'm sure people are wondering uh, they hear about tiger woods it feels like he's probably run the course of his professional golfing career I guess never, you've known him long enough to never say never, but what happened? I mean, what happened to him, you know, to, to go from the height of, uh, you know, probably one of the most popular athletes in the world.
0: What, what, what wrong? Well, I mean, in, in his personal life, that's all public knowledge. Yeah. You know, I don't think he had a good, you know, his dad wasn't the best role model for him in that regard. And I liked Earl, but. You know, he was not a great husband, um, and, and that's who Tiger grew up idolizing. His dad mm. and, and yeah, what's the uh, stat? I remember Dr. Dobson used to quote all
1: the time that ninety-seven percent of parents parent the way they were parented. And yeah, we inherit a lot of the nurturing qualities and emulate what we see for good or bad.
0: Right, and I mean he, he paid a price for a while, uh, as he should have, and. You know, in that regard, I think he rehabilitated himself. You know, I don't want to get into all the women, you know, the issues when he was married. Um, but, you know, then he, had, he he's always been kind of hurt. He's had a lot of injuries. And, you know, the last one, the car crash, still doesn't make any sense to, to most of us. You know, there was never a toxicology report, 7 o'clock in the morning. Uh, never slowed down going down that hill, you know, and, and I, you know, I go, thank God he didn't kill somebody else. He could have right. killed himself, but thank God he didn't kill somebody else. Yeah. He could have. And, you know, those, he's still paying for those injuries.
1: Yeah. One of those difficult stories, but it's so great that you were able to redeem the project that you did on him to, to then have, I mean, let's talk about it. I mean, how did this all start? I mean, you you're, you, and your wife, Marlene, were the first couple to ever adopt a frozen embryo.
0: Yeah. Hannah, Hannah, the,
1: Hannah's snowflake number one.
0: That's right. Well, the way it happened, you know, we were going through infertility issues, which a lot of couples do. And, and then we finally discovered that Marlene had premature ovarian failure. And we were devastated. This is I think this was January of nineteen ninety seven This is when we found out, and you know, so she blurted out to the doctor, well, can we adopt embryos because you know we'd been reading about all these frozen embryos, families you know go through the infertility treatments, produce these embryos, complete their family, and have embryos left over and the you know, nobody had ever asked that question. What? What are you, That's sort of what launched it. Um, then the next step, he didn't, but, you know, planted a seed in everybody's mind. But before we proceeded, we wanted to make sure this is going to be okay in the eyes of the Lord, as best we can figure out. And one of those calls she made was to Dr. Dobson, to focus on the family. We didn't know him. You know, it was at the height of his popularity. I think and the chances of getting a message to him, you know, just from the remote couple, I mean, the odds were astronomical, wouldn't you think? I mean, you worked with him, <clears throat> sure. No, you're, uh,
1: but he cared about. He cares about people, and uh, he 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 would, if he could, he would talk to everybody who called.
0: Right. So, she, you know, they kind of passed it through the chain, and they got back to her and said, if you can get a Letter to him by Monday. This was on a Friday evening. Um, he might be able. We might be able to get it to him. So we typed up a letter, um, FedExed it on Saturday, and then we heard nothing for about a week. And then it was the following Saturday. a Phone rings, and it's Doctor Dobson calling for Marlene. And the reason it took so long was he had to run it by. His people, you know, the you know would counsel him, <clears throat> uh, and it came back, yes, you know, if there were a few stipulations, um, but you know, yes, we think this is this is human life; they should be adopted, and uh, that's sort of how it started. And uh, and we also consulted people in our church, church leaders. And it all came back the same way. Yeah, this is human life, and if you can adopt them, you should adopt them. I mean, there are hundreds of millions, if not more,
1: frozen embryos, right? In, well, it's in,
0: definitely in the millions. I don't know. Okay, It's
1: still out there, yeah. So if you're listening to this program and you feel led by the Lord to consider adopting a frozen embryo, this is still possible to do.
0: Yes, it's, it's still being done. I mean, <laughs> through the agency we went through— um, Nightlight Christian adoptions in Southern California. They have an office now in Loveland and and other places around the country. But you know it. They have a program. It's not just traditional adoption. You can you know international adoption, um, domestic adoption uh, in the Snowflakes program.
1: Yeah, John. I we've, we're running out of time. I spent too much time talking about baseball. I, I apologize <laughs> for that. But for those who are listening and you and they want to learn more about. Hannah's story, you'll, you'll have to have you back to talk more about this, but the book is entitled A Snowflake Named Hannah, Ethics, Faith, and the First Adoption of a Frozen
0: Embryo. Still available. It is. So I think they got one over at the Focus bookstore, too. Oh, fantastic. Yeah,
1: it's a, great, it's a great book. This was a labor of love. Probably of all the books you've written, this probably meant the most to you.
0: Well, there's no question about it. Plus, you know, you grow up we're not supposed to write about ourselves, so it was very hard writing a personal story. But, you know, I really wanted to have put everything we went through into print, so Hannah had a, you know, c- complete knowledge of what went into this. And Hannah's now 20? 20, She's 24. 24, yeah,
1: fantastic. A beautiful young woman and lives here in Colorado in Monument as well.
0: Yeah, and will have her master's degree in social work from Baylor University, in August. Oh, I love that. Wants to get into adoptions. Oh, she's great. I
1: know she's she's friends with our family and, and we love her and, and we love you. And John, it's been so
0: great to talk with you. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at Paul at Paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life.